Well, good evening. I was waiting for my brother-in-law to come sit down. It's hard for me to get started if he, if I can't see him. All right, so we're going to be going through chapter 26, which is follows 25 and is before 27, keeping it right in line. Um, and I, I've titled this message, uh, Fools and Foolishness. Um, if you notice on your paper, we did try to trick you. It says Brother Renee at the top right corner. I'm not Brother Renee. So uh, if you haven't figured that out yet. So we're going to go through uh, the, through the chapter. Um, verses 1 through 12 is really where we're going to spend the majority of the time. Um, and the reason being is in those verses, uh, as we'll read them here in a second, uh, fool is mentioned in every one of those verses except for verse 2. And then the remainder of the chapter um, also just kind of compares and contrasts uh, foolishness and wisdom. So that's where we're going to be as we go through this, and then we'll kind of have a little quantum leap there at one point. But I'm going to go ahead and read 1 through 12 for you before we get started, as we get started here. It says, As snow in the summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. A whip for a horse and a bridle for a donkey and a rod for the fool's back. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. He who sends a message by the hand of the fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like the leg of a lame that hangs limp is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds a stone in a sling is he who gives honor to a fool. And like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. The great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And I'm going to stop there for the purpose of uh, time. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time, is verses 1 through 12. What I want to talk about is some of the, um, the word fool first, kind of because we've, we've all heard that. Um, and there's, there's the fools mentioned, obviously, throughout the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, it's kind of got its, a, a separate set of meaning um, in the Hebrew. And then in the New Testament, it transfers over to the Greek. And the meanings are similar. But I want to talk about that a little bit. The English definition of a fool is a person who acts unwisely or imprudently. A silly person. Pretty basic. Um, you know, I, I, we think about, and I like for myself, and my, my wife actually brought this up while we were talking about it, you know, one of the most popular things of late is the, the great song, um, looking like a fool with your pants on the ground, right? You know, that's, that's kind of how the earth, that's how the world, that's how we, that's a, that's a common use for us, right? I'm not going to do the song for you or the dance. And then the other side of it, where we're going to spend our time, is the biblical meaning. And it's the suppressing and the rejection of the knowledge of God. And that's, and, that's where, and that's where we are at within the Bible. And that's where I want us to really focus on, is that the idea of fool and foolishness is, um, on the extreme side, the unbeliever, but then ultimately the rejection and the suppression of the Word of God. 
Um, in, the, in the Old Testament, several words are rendered as fool. And when you read them, you really have to look at the context in which they're used to kind of see what type of fool um, it's speaking about um, in each one. I know you think, you know, how many different ways are there? Um, and there's actually uh, three main ones in the Old Testament and about the same in the New Testament. All real similar, but kind of just speak to different parts of uh, foolishness. And foolishness in the Bible, when it's, it's contrasted with wisdom, it's not being contrasted with intellectual wisdom. Uh, it's not being contrasted with head knowledge so much as it is the wisdom of God and what it means to know him and what it means to have the knowledge of him, what it means to fear him. Um, and fool, not so much as always stupid, although it can be, uh, but even more so, it's immoral or pernicious. And pernicious is there's kind of a a slow, harmful effect in a person's life uh, as they as they move through foolishness. So that's where we're going to spend some time in the in the Old Testament portion. And the first word, um, and this is in your notes for a fool, is called a nabal. It's uh, n a b a l. Uh, it's nabal, and the Hebrew word which means stupid. Wicked and vile. It also means to fall away, to fail, to faint, to despise, to dishonor, or lightly esteem, or to abandon. It is the Nabal fool who says in his heart that there is no God, and he can and he can actually even teach about God, yet deny him in his thinking. Um, a common thing here is this fool has regressed to the point, uh, in most cases, where they've entered into apostasy. Who here knows what apostasy is? apostasy my first question i took a leap of faith here go ahead mm-hmm. to forsake it's an abandonment or a renounce of or a renunciation of god it's when we get to a place in our life where um we completely and totally reject god and all of his truth and that's what this type of fool is moving this is what this is what this type of fool is someone is in complete rejection of God. And, let's, and when we talked about context, let's look at it in some of the scriptures here. Psalm 14, 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds and there is no one who does good. Ezekiel thirteen three says, Thus says the Lord, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. And then Proverbs seventeen twenty one: He who sires a fool does so to his sorrow. And a father of a fool has no joy. So that's the first. That's one of the first types of a fool, and that's not actually the type that's here in Proverbs 26, but that's one that's also common throughout the Old Testament. The next one is the Hebrew meaning of fool is evil, e-v-i-y-l. It says the word means to be perverse or to be one who is without aim or counsel. The evil fool despises wisdom and instruction. He is full of arrogance and self-justification when confronted with the truth and speaks, and this is the key part, and speaks without thinking. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And 17.28 says, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wiser when he, keeps, when he closes his lips. He is considered prudent. When I read that, I thought about the um, I thought about the verse where it says it's better to remain silent and thought a fool 
than to speak and to remove all doubt. Right? You know, so there's a, there is a key part in our life of remaining silent at times, you know. James tells us to be quick to what? And slow to what? That's slow to speak. Um, you know, and then I, I even thought about, you know, um, not because I've ever been arrested, but because I've watched TV, the Miranda warning. What's the first thing they tell you? You have the right to remain silent. Why do they tell you you have the right to remain silent? Because in most cases, you're going to say something incriminating. So they're warning you ahead of time. Just get in the car and stay quiet. So that's, a, that's the for One, he thinks and speaks without thinking. The next one is um, Kisau. And that's, where we're, that's the one that's in Proverbs 26, and we'll spend a little time here. Um, and the, it's the Hebrew word that literally, now this, this is strange, but it means the loins and flanks of a person are so crowded with fat that they're dull, inactive, and passive, hypocritical, arrogant, careless, stubborn is the key word here, and truth is relative. They don't have a, uh, a moral absolute. And they can't, and they, and they return back to their folly for most parts because they can't help it. Actually, the key, the Kisau fool actually comes from the word Kasal, um, K-A-C-A-L, in the Greek, which means donkey. You can't make this up, people. It's real stuff. So those two words go hand in hand between the Hebrew and the Greek. Stubbornness. Proverbs ten eighteen says, He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. Fourteen sixteen said, A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. And Proverbs eighteen two says, A fool does not delight in understanding. He doesn't really care if it makes any sense, but only in revealing his own mind. Just making sure what he says is what is, is mostly talked about. So this is where we are in chapter 26, uh, verses 1 through 12. Every time that the word fool is mentioned, 1 through 12, except uh, verse 2 because it's not there, this is the type of fool that it's being, it's being referenced, the Kisau fool. And there's a couple of scriptures here I want to talk about um, as we, to, further, to further understand here. And Proverbs 26, 4 through 5 says... Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then five says, answer a folly, I mean, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So there's two parts here. First part is verse four. And we're talking, remember, we're, we're speaking about an unbeliever here. And it says, if, if we answer that person according to his folly, then we become like that ourselves. So the idea here is, is when, when you are in, in conversation um, and there is a, a truth that's put out or a statement that's put out that goes against God's truth and what's right, there's only one way for us as Christians to answer that, um, and that's with God's truth. Uh, because in that moment, if we, if we don't, then we just empower that person's comment. We just empower what they said in a, in a, apart, from, apart from Christ. Now, is there a right way to do it? Of course, and we're not going to talk about application so much tonight. Uh, you can study that part on your own. But the idea is there's a certain way in which we do that, but the idea is it's important that we respond to things that are against the truth of God and the knowledge of God 
in a way that shows who God is and who, how big he is. And also, then the next part, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And then the re- another thing is, we don't want to fall into the same foolishness as well by not confronting him in that situation. And then if we don't, then that, the, the, that foolish thought or that person can continue, leaves that situation thinking that everything's fine. And the, 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 way they've, the way they see it and the way they think about it is just right. But that's not correct. So it says right there that we need to be careful in how we respond. 2611, everybody loves this one, right? Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And that's just gross, right? And, and um, Peter also talks about it. He mentions it again in the New Testament, and he adds one to it, and he says, he says the sow that returns to her wallow, the pig that gets right back in the mud after they've been all cleaned out. So I've thought about that ever since I've ever heard it. And first of all, my first thought always is that's just nasty, right? I mean, a dog back to his own vomit. But how many people here have dogs? Like, real ones. Feline, you know, not, not cats, dogs. Right? So you, you've experienced this probably at some point um, in your ownership of a dog. So I got, you know, I was, and of course, every time, you know, you just hope it doesn't happen on the carpet. You, know, you hope they're like outside or on the, the hard floor uh, so you don't have to get out the resolve and, you know, pat it and get it all cleaned up. Or hopefully they come back, right? <laughs> See, so you're so quick to think how gross and nasty it is and you want to hurry up and bring them outside. Just let them clean it up for you. It, it says they're going to come back, right? So the idea is here, first of all, this was common in the day for these people because there was stray dogs everywhere. This was, this was normal. It was, this was a common thing for them to see. So they understood this. Um, and the scientific side of it is a dog can't help it. It's not gross to them. I mean, it's, it's what they do. It's normal. And there's a couple of things. That, yeah, there is a chance they could be sick. But more times than not, what's actually happening is a, a dog, I don't know, for those of you that have them, mostly have sharp teeth. You know, they don't have a lot of molars like we have. Uh, so they don't do a whole lot of chewing. It's mostly bite and gulp, right? So their teeth are designed to tear and to rip and to eat. But the idea is sometimes they don't tear it well enough. Um, and I know this is graphic, but the reality is, is they got to bring it back because it's, it's not correct for their digestive system. So there is some actually science taking place there. Um, and also dogs don't have a shifting jaw like we do. Uh, you might better shifted with your hands, but they don't, they don't move their teeth back and forth to grind down food. It's, it's tear and gulp. So that's why it's, they, can't re, they can't refuse to go back to it because it's a natural part of the digestion process for the dog. But what he's tied it into a fool, the way it's similar is the same thing goes for a fool. They go right back to their folly each and every time because that's their nature. They don't know any better. That's what is natural to them. You know? and, it, and we don't see it in the same light maybe so much, but that's just the reality of what's going on. And then 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The, the fool gets a break right here. He gets a break. He says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? So see, a, a fool, and it, it takes it to a whole other level whenever he feels like he's got it together and he's got it right. A, a man who is wise in his own eyes 
Uh, I was making that conscious decision, whereas the fool is just doing like that dog, back to the vomit, just going back to it. And what we've got to do, and, and, and what I see here is, you know, guys, we have to be careful that our pride does not become the wisdom of our life. We've got to be careful that our pride doesn't become the wisdom of our life. So now we jump over to the New Testament. We talk about it there, and it says, and there, there are fewer terms here, and they're all negative. There's nowhere in here where a fool's a good thing. Actually, the Greek word for fool is where we get our word in English, moron. Um, that's, the, that's where it comes from, so don't call people a moron. And the difference is not so much, between the Old Testament and New Testament, it's not so much um, a, ling, a linguistic difference, and the words are very similar in meaning, uh, but it's the way that they're used in Scripture, um, kind of like the, the context of it. You know, actually, there's a part in the, in the New Testament where Jesus tells them to not call someone a fool um, and equates it to the, sim, the sim, excuse me, similar to uh, murder or hurting that person to that level. So the idea is it's a, it's a serious word that we need to take serious. And, you know, it is theologically correct for us to call someone a fool or to think that. But here's the catch. In that moment, if we don't, when, when we so-called identify who this person is a fool, in our heart, if we are not going to approach that person um, in a place of which that we want to we see them saved, uh, we want to help them through that situation where we have a heart for them the way Christ does. We're on a slippery slope. We have to be able to see people the way Christ saw them. Um, remember, it's our foolishness that separated us from God at one point as believers, correct? And, you know, if, if we want to touch this world for Christ, we need to be able to look at people in the same way in which Christ did during his incarnation. And that's a, um, that's a big deal, and I don't claim that to be easy. But the idea is, and this is where we're going to move into the next part of this study, is we've got ha- to check our hearts as we're identifying these things in our life, that, that we're in a place uh, where we desire for that person to come unto salvation. So now we're going to jump into it here. That was the intro. First point, it is foolish for us to forget where we come from. It is foolish for us to forget where we came from. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Is that... Anybody here know about that? I'm in the right place. Foolish, the word foolish is, you know, obviously a little bit different. It's the Greek word um, anaitos, which is a complete lack of understanding, total ignorance in regard to particular area of knowledge. And in this case, we're talking about God. And then in case we just needed a little more information on who's wise and who's not, 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 25 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So in case you had any doubt, wisdom 
and God are synonymous. Not us. You know, when you, I, and I, I was thinking about this. When you were a believer, I mean, excuse me, when you were an unbeliever, how did you view the way in which a Christian thought, if you had any interaction? They were crazy. Anybody else? You don't only want Chuck. Misinformed. Yep, arrogant. Well, guess what? 1 Corinthians 1.18 brings that into perspective for us. It says, For the work of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. And that is just such a powerful scripture in so many ways because I think so many times as believers, you know, we, we, we come into salvation and we all of a sudden just forget about where we came from. And I'm not saying that we, you don't want to forget about the pain, and I'm not trying to minimize where some of us come from in that situation. But the idea is if we really want to see the impact that Christ has had in our life, we've really got to be able to see where he brought us from. We have to be able to remember where he brought us from in order to see what he's doing in our life at that point as well. You know, I think about um, the story, uh, you know, Jacob, famous Jacob from the Bible. And we know about all of his issues and all the problems he caused and everything else. And he gets to the latter part of his life and God changes his name, right? What's he changed his name to? To Israel. But what I think is interesting is, is, Although God, God changed his name and is powerful, God is still the God of Jacob as well as the God of Israel. You know, and that's powerful for us when we, when we look at where we've come from and to realize, you know, we think so many times where we were was, yes, it was such a mess and all the bad things and so forth and so on. But if you didn't have that, if you didn't experience that, then what did Christ do for you? What happened in your life in order for that to take place? And then I think about the song, Amazing Grace. What's one of the lines in there? You saved the wretch like me. You saved the wretch like me. And that whole song's talking about the amazing grace of God and what he did. But there's also, it's also thrown in there that we remember where we came from. Guys, it's so important for us to remember that. It's foolish for us not to remember where we came from. The next part, it is foolish for us to forget what Christ has done. You know, so many times we get into our Christian walk and we're moving along and life is good. Um, And I think we sometimes lose sight of the sovereignty of God and his grace and what actually took place. And the idea that that wasn't a one-time event for us. That God's grace is sufficient for our whole life. God's grace takes us from that moment of justification through sanctification unto glorification. And the idea is that he, he keeps us through that entire process. And he has the power to do so. And we need to remember and not forget what he's done. Titus 3, 4 through 7, moving on from verse 3, starts off with the word but. Now, if you remember... It talks about us being foolish and led astray and quarreling and everything in verse 3. And then it says, but, that three-letter word there, a conjunction that moves us from one step to the next. And this is where he moves us from where we were to where we now are in Christ. 
That three-letter word there moves us in there. And it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saves us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's good stuff. That is good stuff. And we're going to go through it. There's actually seven different areas right here in this verse that I want us to look at. Uh, one and two will combine, so it will only be six technically. But one and two, the first part that says, he, it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. The goodness and loving kindness. And the picture there is, guys, that just the, just the very fact that God said, I'm going to send my son to earth to die for you is the very first part where he's showing his kindness and his goodness to us right there, right off the bat. We didn't have to do anything for it. This is where we're going to start. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And the type of love they're talking about there is agape love. It's a much deeper type of love, an unconditional type of love, in contrast to phileo love, which is more of a brotherly love. So the idea is this is a deep, deep action of love that Christ did for us. And then he moves us to the next part, and he says, his mercy. Not because it works on my rest, but according to his own mercy. And we actually, this, part of this is from a message I did at a men's meeting a couple months ago. Um, and, and when I looked at the word mercy and gotten to kind of understand it a little bit more, first of all, the, the, it translates to a word called eleos, which is an outward manifestation of pity and assumes need on the part of those who receive it. That's important. And sufficient resources to meet the need on the part of those who show it. So God extends us mercy. So the first thing we've got to look at there is someone needs it. That's us. The more important part is, because all of us are in need of mercy at times, the more important part of, of this is that God is sufficient to show mercy. So you ha- in order to show mercy, um, you have to be able to do so. Um, there's two sides to it. Actually, I got a little object lesson I want to show you, so I'm going to call my sister up real quick. She so graciously has agreed to do this through act of coercion. This is my sister Lauren, and whom I love. So the idea in mercy is, first of all, there's someone that really needs it. <laughs> Small, weak, fragile, and frail. And then you have someone that's able to give it. Strong, powerful, <laughs> mighty. So who, who, how many of y'all here have heard of the game uh, Mercy in school? Where you play, where you grab your hands. We'll, we'll show you. So you do like this. So the idea of the game is that we, we bring our hands underneath, and the person that can bend the other hand, person's hand back the most has to yell mercy, right? So Lauren finds herself in this situation in a place of need and mercy because there's no way that she's going to bend back my fingers more than I'm going to bend back hers. So the other, and though she may try. And then the reality is I am capable of bestowing that mercy upon her if I wanted. So I can decide if it's at the point where she says, ow. I can decide if it's at the point where she falls to her knees. I can decide it's at the point where her fingers crack. But the idea is I am able to do so. Great job. 
You did amazing. Give her a hand. So what's, ex- so what's important there, guys, is that God was able to bestow that mercy upon us. And we were in much need of it. The next part moves into it says, and he and it says, by the washing of regeneration, by the wash, by his washing of regeneration. So he sends him, he comes down to earth, he bestows that mercy upon us, and we have a regeneration, right? We have that new flesh that's put into us, right? And the idea is, if we don't, if we don't have the new flesh, then as we're going to, you're going to see, it's we can't move to the next, but next part of the process in salvation. Uh, regenerated actually comes from a word called palingenesia, which is the spiritual rebirth or spiritual renovation by the washing of regeneration. Excuse me. So now we're in a place that we're able to receive the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, which is necessary in the process of salvation. The next part, um, number five, it says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of, of the Holy Spirit, who is, who is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the next part is the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And this is the result or the, the effect of the regeneration. Um, this is where we have that new life when we're regenerated. Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. That regeneration process has taken, taken place. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. That new flesh, that spiritual renovation has taken place. And is in field, And our spirit is then filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's where we go as we move through that process of his spirit moving into ours. And the next part he brings up is his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So just in case we were confused as who was doing this, it's Jesus Christ, our Savior. His son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there's no doubt Jesus is the answer. And I love this part where it ends here at the end of the, end of the verse. And it says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of an eternal life. His grace, God's unmerited favor in our life which means we didn't deserve it, which means we couldn't pay for it, which means it's not about us, it's about him. Because what do we know? Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's powerful. That's powerful. And once again, you got that three-letter word there, but notice in Scripture when you're reading that we're presented with the problem in so many times, and then the answer. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but, but, and then it says, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
And then just to add on to that, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the dead, to inheritance, that is, catch this right here, this is good, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God, our Savior is so powerful. Our Savior is so good. So, guys, we have to remember what Christ did. And I would say that that's the most important part for us as Christians in our walk, is that we have to always be going back to what Christ did for us. Who is Christ in our life? What has he done for us? What has he done for the people around us? His name is to be lifted high and to be glorified in all things. You know, so many times I think, and I think it's sad, but our church, and when I say our church as a whole, the Christian community, has gotten really hung up in what God can do for us and got really hung up in all of the, the blessings and the prosperity side of what God does. And although those things are factors, if we don't first see him as a sovereign and a holy God, a God in which we fear, Proverbs 1.7 says the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. Church, if we don't get to a place where that is the center point of our walk as Christians, we're we're in a dangerous place. We're in a place of foolishness if we don't do that. It is so important that we do so. And then from there, we remembered where we came from. We we know what God has done for us. And the last point is it is foolish for us to forget what our responsibility is. It is foolish for us to forget what our responsibility is. We cannot forget that what God did for us through Jesus is the gospel message that brings us out of foolishness. And once we remember that, we understand what our responsibility is as Christian. Matthew 26, the Great Commission says, And Jesus came and said to him, I want you to catch this right here, it says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So before he even gives them the Great Commission, before he even tells them what their responsibility is. He wants to says, but I want you to understand, it's okay. I'm in control. All the power's with me. There's no, no reason for you to have concern on whether or not it's good. So now what I'm going to tell you, you're going to be okay with, right? It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. And I love how it talks about in there about teaching them to observe all that he commanded. Teaching them and moving through that process. I think so many times as as Christians, we easily identify problems. We easily identify foolishness. We easily identify sin in other people's lives. But we really struggle when it comes to the next part, when it comes to the teaching part, the part where we show who God is and why God is good and why he can meet you in that situation. It says that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, jumping back into Titus 3.8, it says, now he just told us about all of the amazing 
part of Jesus and what he did. And he said, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Now, he's not talking about profit in the sense of monetary gain. But he's saying if, if we see what Christ did and those things take place, then it's profitable for the person that understands it and sees it. You know, we are to devote ourselves to good works, not to be justified, but to bear fruit of what Christ has done in us. I love this uh, part in James 2. It says, what good is it, brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Ever think about that? That's a funny verse. We, 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 we acknowledge all of the issue and the problem in that person, and this is it's talking about the physical um, but instead of meeting the need of that person there, we just basically say, you'll be okay. I'm going to pray for you as you head on out of here. But the idea is meeting that person in that place. In Matthew 25, it talks about when we meet the hungry and the sick and the imprisoned and, and, and meeting those people in that place. Not so that you be, not so you be glorified, not so that you just can check off things in your book of different works you've done. But that so in that situation, that person sees what Christ did in you. And because of what he's done in you, now you're able to show that through that work in that person's life. It's so easy to get caught up in foolish things and for us to lose sight of the prize of Jesus Christ. You know, I've experienced this myself in church so many times that we come here, you know, two, three times a week. Um, and it becomes routine for us so many times. It's just what we do, you know. And not that it's a bad place to routinely attend, uh, but the idea is, you know, as Christians, our goal is to lift God high. And in that, in, in that situation and in that moment, we're able to minister to the people around us, and they're able to see that what's going on. And they're able to see that God's name is lifted high. And as they're drawn unto him, and they see that change in their life, that's when things begin to happen. You know, there's a couple of verses here that kind of talk about us getting sidetracked and losing focus. And Second Thessalonians 2, 2 and 3 says, Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Guys, there's going to be things that happen around us that don't make sense to us um, or evil. Um, we don't agree with. We don't like. But it doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change that God is still all-powerful. You know, we're all talking about the election. And I actually listened to the radio this morning on my way to work. And it's just amazing to me. Uh, when you, I can, you can just hear the fear in people's voice, either side of the aisle, depending on what happens. But the idea is, no matter what happens, God is still God. How many nations has God seen rise and fall? How many nations has God seen wicked and evil rulers? And has it changed who he is? 
Does it change how we view life around us? Does it change the idea that our call is to go out into all the world and to make disciples of men? Does it change any of that? No. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of that time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And what's the will of the Lord? For men to be drawn unto salvation, right? Women, children, excuse me. The idea is that is still God's plan. James 3, 3 through 18, not 3, 13, excuse me. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and his meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then we close out in three in Titus 3.9. It caps off this section of verse we was in. And it says, once again, there's that three-letter word, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Guys, we've got to be careful to not get caught up in those things. Remember, we've, it, it's foolish for us not to remember what our calling is. And our calling is to go out into all the world and to proclaim Christ and who he is. You know, earthly profit and gain amounts for nothing. What's ultimately the end game for us is eternal gain and eternal life in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for this night. And we thank you for this time. And I pray, Father, that we leave here, God, in a way, Father, that God, we just are in awe of who you are. God, that we're amazed, God, by your amazing grace. And I pray, Father, that we don't forget, God, that what you brought us from. God, to show, Father, how powerful, how sovereign you are in our lives. God, give us strength, Father, as we go out. And God, as we approach life, God, I pray that we will be honest with ourselves and that we won't try to fool ourselves into thinking another way. But God, that a way in which your spirit, Father, can minister to us and change us. And God, that we are busy about your work, Father. God, we just ask for your anointing upon this church. And we thank you for your word. And we just ask for safety as we leave. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.